0: Hey guys, welcome to episode number 22 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach and in today's episode you're going to be hearing from Craig Pickering, who as you probably know is uh, an elite level athlete for Great Britain, competed in the 100 metres, went to the Summer Olympics in 2008, went to a number of high level championships, uh, medaled at the European level, uh, then made a transition from track and field to uh, the two-man bobsled and actually qualified for a second Olympics Uh, in a a second sport, that being the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Unfortunately, he didn't get to go due to uh, a back injury and has now uh, transitioned into becoming a sports scientist uh, following on from his uh, degree in sports science, which he completed uh, during his time as an athlete. And I always love these talks because anytime you get to speak to uh, a world-class athlete, there's a ton of information and a ton of insight that you're able to get um, as an athlete or as a strength and conditioning coach. But when you, when you double it up and you speak to somebody like Craig, who is a, a qualified practitioner and has a ton of knowledge and a ton of his own thoughts about training, uh, you're just getting double value. So this was a, an awesome conversation to have with Craig. Um, we talked you know, about a bunch of stuff, his experiences of, of being a high-level athlete, what the reality is of, of world-class performance and, and training uh, day in, day out, um, maybe what the difference is between Uh, what happens at the elite level and what science tells us should happen because he's had a foot in either camp as both an athlete as a coach. Uh, We're also going to talk about um, culture of elite performance and also the future of um, gene science in performance and his current role that he's working in. Um, And yeah, it's going to be some exciting stuff for the future. If you enjoyed this and you want to get access to more information that's available on RugbyStrengthCoach.com, like our monthly webinars from elite strength and conditioning coaches from uh, different sports all over the world. If you want to get access to our our members forum, uh, speak to coaches there, discuss strength and conditioning, get advice on maybe how to uh, build a career for yourself as a coach or or just ask questions of other coaches. Make sure you go to RugbyStrengthCoach.com slash members and you'll be able to access all of that stuff. Uh, But for now, enjoy the episode and I'll speak to you soon. Craig, how's it going?
1: Yeah, good, yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Mate, I appreciate it. You're the um the first ever Olympian on the Rugby Strength Coach podcast.
1: Uh, yeah, it's an honor.
0: <laughs> so um, you know, people hopefully are familiar with, with you and what you do, but for for those who've not heard of you before, um what's your what's your background?
1: Yeah, so I used to be an athlete, I was fairly good, but it was a long time ago now. So um did track and field for a fair few years. I went to four world championships and one Olympic Games in that and I got a world championship medal in the relay so the relay was probably my main event I wasn't quite fast enough to be that good as an individual but I was also a 100 meter runner and then I sort of moved across to do bobsleigh for a little bit for just over a year and qualified for the Olympics in that which made me one of um, only eight British people to be picked for a summer and winter Olympic Games which sounds like a happy ending but it wasn't because I got there and I got really badly, badly injured uh, and I have to retire so that's kind of my sporting background, retired in 2014, and now I kind of just do bits and pieces. My main job is working for a company called DNA Fit and a head of sports science there, so that's kind of what I'm doing now.
0: I mean, it's, not, it's not fair to say that you were pretty good, like you were the fast white guy before Christoph Lemaître came around.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we had a slight overlap, and I remember um, sort of 2007, 2008 were probably my best years, and you know, people kind of postulate a little bit whether I'd be the first white man to go under 10. And then in 2009, I wasn't having a great year and the Metro went and did it. And I remember the day that I got the news, I was pretty, pretty disappointed. But, you know, he's a really, really good athlete. And I think um, I probably reached close to my genetics in anyway, so perhaps might have been just a step too fast. So my personal best was 10:14, 14. Um, so just fifteen hundredths away from breaking the 10-second barrier, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in sprinting, that's about a metre and a half. So I was still a pretty good way off.
0: Yeah, so were you... Um... Were you a funded athlete when you were were in track and field?
1: Yeah, I was um, for for essentially the large, well, all of my career, really. So um, I started off doing athletics when I was 13. So I always knew I was quick. I used to win a sports day and things like that. And then when I went to secondary school, I won my first sports day there and I broke the school record. So I was in year, year eight, so I would have been 13, and I ran 11.65 years. off no training. So my PhD was like, well, you're quite quick. You should go to the athletics club. Um, And I didn't really want to go to the athletics club because I thought, well, these guys are all going to be training, so they're probably going to be really good and they'll beat me. But my parents convinced me to go um, and I went along and I won my first race by about a second. So that gave me sort of a reasonably good uh, insight that I might be all right. And then a year later, I was national champion and second fastest 14-year-old ever in in the UK history. So that gave me a good start. And then um, when I was... 16s when I first got on the funding program so they have like a potential program for people who you know show some promise you don't get um any real money but you get support you get physiotherapy and stuff like that stuff that's really really good so physio strength conditioning and that kind of made me become a bit more professional exposed me to knowing a bit more about weight training and that kind of thing um and then when I was 18 I was put onto the the program properly, if you like. I'd just come back from the World Championships. Um, I'd also won the European Under-20 Championships, and i ran 10-22, so I was running pretty well. Um, so they put me on, on funding there, which was you know good, because if you're trying to be a professional athlete, you can't really have another job, especially if you have to go away quite a lot to training camps and competitions. So the funding, the money you get from funding is good enough to live on. It's not, no one gets rich off lottery funding, um, but the the better part of that was you get access to really good facilities, um, people who know a lot about stuff like strength training, nutrition, psychology, physiology, massage, physio, all those things that you really, really need. That helps a lot. And then that was probably, yeah, I was 18 and it gave me you know, much more of a knowledge base on how to improve my performance. I, mean, I stayed on funding until I was 26, which is when I had back surgery, um, couldn't race for a year. And uh, Because I couldn't race for a year, they decided they didn't need me anymore. So because I wasn't getting paid, I had an option to find a real job, which I didn't really want to do, or find someone else to pay me to do sport, which is what Bob Bobsleigh said they'd do. So again, they put me on a funding program. Uh, and I would reiterate, it's not a lot of money. You don't do it for the money at all. But it's enough to sort of just get by on and not really accumulate too much debt. But the main thing is just so you don't have to work and you can sort of focus all your efforts on being a professional athlete.
0: Were you based at uh, EIS Bath for for both of those sports?
1: No, I was for a bit. So I went to university at Bath. um, So I was based there for four years during my degree and I stayed for an extra year um, to be a professional athlete. So yeah, that was the EIS centre there. And at that time, UK Athletics had kind of a satellite centre. Malcolm Arnold was was my coach. He used to coach Colin Jackson. And at the same time, he was coaching Jason Gardner, who was the European record holder for 60 metres. So we had a pretty good squad down there, and then all the sprinters kind of left and I was on my own for a few years, and I just thought um, i'm not really enjoying it down here as much as I want. I'm basically doing all my training by myself. The rest of the group of 400 meter runners um, I'd become a bit sort of stagnant and stale in the same environment, so that 's when I relocated to loughborough um, for athletics, um, which was the national hub um, at that time and still is and that was again like a really really good experience. spent four years there as an athlete learning from all the staff and all that but when I moved there, I spent sort of two or three years there as an athlete and then swapped to do bobsleigh, and then they're based in Bath. So having just moved to Loughborough for athletics, I then started to do a sport which is based in Bath, where I just moved from. Um, so I used to just go down the, uh, the motorway twice a week to Bath to try and train there.
0: And, and what was the, the kind of format of training, uh, or how did your training week look when you were a full-time track and field athlete, and, and how did that kind of change when you became a bobsled athlete?
1: So it's depending on what coach you're under. Depends on kind of what system you do. So when I was under Malcolm, um, when I was sort of eighteen till twenty-three, we had a, a, a very basic system. Like Malcolm's been around for a long time. He's very old-school in his approach. But essentially, we trained six times a week. Three of those sessions we'd run. Three of those sessions we'd lift weights, and they'd be separated by a day. So Monday you'd come in and you'd run as fast as you could. Tuesday you'd come in lift weights as heavy as you could. Wednesday you'd run quickly. Thursday you'd lift heavy weights. Friday you'd run as quick as you could. Saturday lift heavy weights, and it, literally the weight sessions would be we'd come in and we'd do power cleans, then we'd do bench press, then we'd do back squat, and then we'd do some circuits. It was just the same weight sessions all the time, but we got really good improvements in that. And the thing is that when I was sort of finishing my degree, I started to do a lot of reading around what other sprinters do, and I thought other sprinters don't really train like this. So even though I'd got success under that program and I had my most success in that program, I was kind of thinking the grass is perhaps a bit green on the other side. So that's when I moved to Loughborough to work with a guy called Michael Kamel, who is a Russian, who used to live in Australia. So he coached a guy called Matt Shervington, got into front 10 0 which for a long time was Australian national record, and then moved to the UK. So I was working with him, and he was using a much more complex or certainly more intense system whereby like, you train twice a day every day. So Monday you'd come in and you sprint in the morning, lift in the afternoon. Tuesday would be kind of like tempo stuff with bodyweight circuits, Wednesday would lift heavy weights and do rehab. Thursday would sprint and do circuits. Friday lift heavy weights, do rehab. Saturday would do like speed endurance stuff. And that was, you know, different, good to get a hold of. It was perhaps a little bit too hard for me. And then when I moved to Bobsleigh, things changed for the better because you basically lift really heavy weights and run as fast as you can all the time. So you don't do any speed endurance stuff. You don't do any um, kind of max velocity stuff too much because max velocity is not a massive factor there. It's all about acceleration, pushing heavy stuff. So um kind of went back to a more simpler system where I'd come in one day, run as quick as I could, come in another day, lift heavy weights, come in the next day, run as quick as I could. And that was kind of how I just did it. So the word, the word differences um, in terms of you don't do as much speed endurance stuff for Bob's day, but aside from that, more or less the same, to be honest.
0: And I'm, I'm guessing there's a little bit of change in, in the the need to keep Body composition under control or, or body mass under control with a bobsled because you know, I suppose extra weight is extra gravity, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the that's probably the nicest thing about being a bobsled athlete is you don't have to maintain a low body weight, or in fact, you have to actively try and maintain a high body weight. So, how it works is that there's a maximum weight of the sled with the four people sat in it, and that's 630 kilos. There's also a minimum weight of the sled, which is 220 kilos. So Basically, you want the sled to be as light as it is, light as it can be. You want it to be 220 kilos. So when you push it, you can push it really quickly. And then you want the sled to weigh 630 kilos when you're sat in it. So it goes down the hill really quickly. So you, the athlete, has to be the difference in that weight. And it works out that each athlete can weigh 102.5 kilos. When I was 100 meter runner, I weighed 82 kilos, which gave me um, 20 kilos to play with. And I managed to put on sort of 15 kilos. Um, I raced at 97 Big kilos in kit. World. So that was, that was so, Yeah, in a year, I sort of added about 11 kilos of weight and then added the other five kilos or four kilos over the next year. And basically, all I did was I stopped limiting how much food I ate. So I ate probably about 4,000 calories a day. Um, didn't really get much fatter, but because for my whole athletics career, I'd been sort of under eating, I just wasn't able to put on or maintain any muscle mass. As soon as I took away that restriction, just basically just got massive so my upper body like blew up um didn't necessarily get much stronger in my squats or cleans or anything like that but my bench press went out quite a lot like, my biceps were massive my back was huge so like you just look quite good as well so that was a nice a nice difference difference <laughs> and then once I want to qualify for olympics I was still underweight um so I had to try and put on as much weight as I could in two weeks so I was having spaghetti bolognese and a full bar of toe for breakfast like, it's a miserable <laughs> way to live, though, because you feel sick the whole day. But you just can't eat enough food um, in that whole time period.
0: Just get married, it seems to help a lot of women. <laughs> yeah.
1: well, I think I'm going that way now. I'm heavier now than when I was doing bobsleigh. I'm trying not to be, so I'm a bit, a bit concerned, right?
0: You know, it's funny. My, um, my girlfriend is, is just about to get out of hospital. She spent a month in there. She had an, an infection and a surgery. And I think she was like 54 when she went in. She's like 46 now. And we were, yeah. we were trying to come up with strategies for her to, to gain the weight back. And I, I said, you know, like thinking about it, I said, it's always probably helpful to look at the people who gain the most amount of weight purely by accident. And that's when I look <laughs> to the Americans and I just think, right, high sugar, high fat, high salt, loads of liquid calories yeah. and never yeah. run unless you can walk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kind of interested, like you mentioned that you didn't get that much of an increase in um, strength when you switched to bobsled. Was there ever a point in your, your training career as a track and field athlete whereby you, you stopped seeing uh, transfer from kind of general maximal strength and then you had to kind of switch things up in your training to keep seeing those improvements in performance?
1: Yeah, so like really early on in my career, so I started doing weights when I was 16 and I saw massive improvements until I was 20, so really, really big improvements. Um, in fact, one year I was doing more weight sessions and I was doing sprint sessions, which sounds stupid, but I ran really quick that year. So I was getting really, really good improvements. Took off almost half a second in those four years. And then in the next six years, I didn't really run any quickly. In fact, I didn't run any quicker. My personal best from when I was 21, no 20, in fact. Um, so I didn't get any quicker, but I got stronger. Uh, I got quite a bit stronger as well. So when I ran my 100-meter personal best, my power clean was 122 kilos. Um, now it, my personal best is 140 uh, back squat was sort of 190 when I ran 10 14, and I finished off with about 240 kilo cool. back squat but for no real improvement. Well, no improvement at all in the speed. And one of the reasons I think that is is because I put started to put a lot of stock in how heavy I was lifting in training so. I, for, some, for some reason, I'm, I'm not sure why, I decided that power cleans were the key to why I was going to run really quickly. So I'd come in and power cleans would be the lift that I, was, I cared most about. So I'd try and lift as heavy as I could. And so obviously, when you start to lift heavy, this bar speed goes down a little bit. You perhaps don't see all the transfer you'd want. And I think that's part of the reason why I started to run a little bit slower. So I saw no real um, – I basically made power cleans a surrogate marker of how well I was going to perform in a race and it didn't really correlate at all and then actually didn't get any quicker at all and then I had back surgery in 2012 which meant I could no longer do Olympic lifts at all so I couldn't power clean, couldn't back squat, couldn't do anything like that so I had to start thinking about different ways to do those exercises so I started to do Bulgarian split squats, um, step ups, m- much more sort of single leg specific work mm-hmm. and I don't know how that would have carried over because I didn't race 100 meters after that I just started doing bobsleigh but I certainly was as quick there was no sort of real drop-off so kind of showed to me fairly nicely that I probably should have changed things up pretty early on um I definitely shouldn't have placed all my emphasis on lifting heavy weights I should have focused on other exercises I didn't do plyometrics until I was 26 which I think was probably a bit of a mistake as well um but that's just because you know the co- my coach didn't believe in plyometrics so i didn't go to do them so um although now i think that's a really poor decision on my part when you're 20 and you've got a coach loads of experience you don't question him all the time so you know things like that which which i would perhaps have done differently had i known what i know now but yeah so basically i think as an athlete you probably want exposure to loads of different exercises um single leg double leg sometimes heavy sometimes not so heavy it's, in, those things should sort of change up to be honest
0: so is it kind of that i suppose that vertical integration idea where you have at all stages throughout your career there are all elements present within the program but maybe the emphasis shifts from one to another depending on you know what your training age is how close you are to competition and so on
1: yeah i think i think when you're young you should try and put on or should get stronger because that's you're going to get a really good and transfer over there because that's probably the, the limiting factor but there's there must there must be a threshold for sprinters and it'll be individual to each person but there's a threshold at which they're strong enough and that any extra effort they put into weight training is going to yield either no results or very small results so like, if your power clean pb's 140 kilos and you get it up to 142 kilos is that actually going to make any difference when you're on the track like, probably not if you get up to 160 it might but that's a lot of work Um, To do that, especially if you're you're you know already very strong and developed athlete, so it is is very different. And yeah, so when you're young, should probably focus on things like that. And when you get older, it's more about I think I think it should be about movement quality and then refining things that you can already do. So don't get injured. That's the first thing. Try and put steps in and a rehabilitation program prevent that, general strength perhaps becomes a bit more important, kind of like movement quality, so are you doing plyometrics properly, can you move really well, are you getting rid of any sort of inhibitions, which for me were like psoas and hamstrings, that kind of thing, Um, can you actually sprint, and sprinting becomes really important, because that's where you're going to see a lot more improvement, so yeah, it definitely should, or does shift, um, as you get older, and, and a much more developed athlete.
0: And do you think it's a fair kind of statement to say that perhaps the more natural talent you have, as, as a sprinter or as, or as an athlete uh, the less uh, you need the development of those general exercises to, to still excel in your sport because the, the two big examples that spring to mind for me was uh, you've already mentioned Christophe Lemaitre, who's you know weak as a kitten in the gym but he still ran sub 10 and also you've seen the video of, of Usain Bolt in the gym like perhaps for him a 60-kilo you know, reverse curl power clean is sufficient for him. And then all the other stuff that you mentioned, that's where he's making the, the most progress.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that. So I definitely think that you know, we put a lot of stock in, into, into weight training, which is not always the case. And then for like the more talented you are, the, co- the job of the coach is to basically not to wreck the athlete. So just don't get them injured and then just get small improvements across, across things. So if you're saying bolt to make him quick, he just has to turn yeah. up to train and run. And that's yeah. <laughs> basically what it was. So can I stop Usain Bolt from partying five nights a week? If I get him to party twice a week, that's an improvement and it'll run much quicker. And that's kind of, I guess, if you're really talented, that's um, how you can approach it. I was less talented, in my opinion. So I um, started to pay a lot more attention to that kind of thing. And then uh, G- doing CPE wrecked me because that's where I really started to get a really big interest into sports science. Then I did a level PE and then I did a degree in sports science and so you're exposed to loads of information and you haven't really got a practical filter on it and so you start thinking oh you know this study says I should be doing this type of training but this study says I should do this type of training but neither of those two types of training the training that I'm doing is that training better for me and then you start to question what your coach is doing and you lose confidence and all that kind of thing so actually (laughs) I think going back I wish I was stupid and I also wish I was lazy and perhaps I would have run a bit quicker but you can't go back and change things like that.
0: Well, you hear these, uh, these anecdotes from Charlie Francis about Ben Johnson, like when, when the rest of the group were doing laps, like he would mysteriously disappear.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, so I used to train with Greg Rutherford in the gym and I'm sure Greg Rutherford is perhaps a little bit better now, but honestly, in one year, he turned up to three gym sessions and he jumped 8 metres 16 that year and broke the uh, British record, British junior record for long gym Like, Greg Rutherford is the most talented athlete I've ever seen do anything. I've seen him single leg box jump about a meter and a half. Like he's he's a mental athlete. But at that time, I don't know what he's like now because I haven't been around him for a few years. But at that time, he you know he wasn't really that bothered about training. But he just believed he was going to be really good, and he believed that the training he did do was sufficient for him to be successful. Well, and he ended up being really
0: successful. It's it's funny you should mention that because obviously you know Dan Dan Path still coaches him, and yeah. uh, two friends of mine went out to Arizona to do. Dan Path's mentorship at World Athletic Centre and in the lead up to, to London and the World Championships uh, last year they were saying that he only does you know, maybe one heavyweight session every two weeks because they've established that for him you know, he's got this huge engine and maybe not the frame to tolerate it because he's had his yeah. injury issues as well and you know, it's funny yeah. how instinctively all those years ago he maybe knew what was, what was right for him that tends to go in the face of, of certain types of research
1: yeah, no, exactly. So Greg um, always struggled with injuries, always quite fragile. And yeah, you're right. Had he done more training load, perhaps at that point in time, he would have broken down. Um, and Dan's done a really good job with him. Dan, I don't know Dan particularly well. I've come across him a few times when he worked in the UK, but he's he's kind of somebody who's like, what what's best for the athlete is what's important. Whereas, so there's, there's no sort of, theory about okay we have to train six times a week and we have to lift three times a week and these lifts have to be in there he's basically like this is what i think we should do have a conversation with the athlete what does the athlete think i know the athlete doesn't really like that okay we'll change to to try maybe try and do this 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 and this so like for large parts of the year dan's coaching greg but greg lives in london so dan will email greg with the program and say maybe try and do these sessions if you can and then if greg feels like it he can if he doesn't because there's a trust there as well and dan understands that greg can make those decisions based on how it feels.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, like you, you, you mentioned stuff about like high level athletes and, and talent and stuff like that. Like I had a guy um in the Pumas who, you know, he, he he likes leg press. He doesn't squat. He likes his leg press and, you know, he's probably already, you know, one of the best in the world in this position. So it was kind of my job just to stay out of his way and to let him keep doing what he was doing because he was playing well, even though you know, there's, there's probably 10 different arguments you to say, well, this guy should be squatting and not doing the leg press.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then if you go in you start changing things and say you can't do leg press because of these reasons, well, first of all, he's going to think you're a dick, so he's not going to listen to anything you say. And then secondly, he believes in leg press, so he needs to be doing leg press. He, like, whether that's going to make him better or not, if he has that individual belief that this train is making him better, perhaps that's why he's performing really well. So there's kind of like so many factors that go in to, to be an athlete and the psychology of it is really quite important as well.
0: Do you, do you think there are any other examples of perhaps where um, coaching is ahead of science or so the, the two uh, disagree with one another? Because obviously you, you've got that experience of having, you know, being a, a, an elite professional athlete but also a practitioner as well. So you've got quite a, an interesting insight into that.
1: Yeah, so like, the problem with science is that you kind of have to like, replicate things and that takes a long time. And then also you've got to be able to find a significant difference. So are you seeing an improvement that's statistically significant? I can win a 100-meter race by 1,000th a second. That's not statistically significant. So if you did a research paper on how much does someone win a 100-meter race by, it would never have the significance. So that's one of the kind of real-world issues within that. So there's just so much disconnect between science and practicality sometimes that it, you get a lot of problems with that so like I remember like three or four years ago the research was that if you did static stretching before activity you were basically like 50% less powerful and that was because of how they designed the experiments so they'd give them a static stretch and then get them to sprint as fast as they could and obviously they were slower because you just basically decreased all the tone in the muscle but nobody really warms up like that do a static stretch go and do some drills some dynamic stretching perhaps just activation stuff and then you do a sprint and then research is just catching up with that now. That if you actually do that type of thing, static stretching has no negative effects as long as you have a dynamic component in between. But coaches have probably figured that out ten years ago. That's why some athletes still static stretch. Um, but it takes time to design the correct training, sorry, the correct um, scientific research in order to elicit these changes. So there's you know, a real big disconnect. And the more time I spend, spend working in science, the more I realise that science is just basically a guide for you because it's t- determined by the average or the mean of the results there's such a large range in those results you might be a responder or a non-responder anyway so <laughs> it just gets to be like a complete minefield
0: yeah and obviously i suppose you're not concerned with what is the on average what is the best program for the average individual you're concerned with what works for this one individual to to win a race kind of thing
1: yeah exactly so like what so i went when i had back surgery i had to spend a long time in the uh British Olympic Association intensive rehab unit. And they did a lot of work with me on like reeducating how I move. It was really, really like, incredible experience. Um, and the biggest thing they did for me is they they brought in a, a pair, a set of six pound Chinese cups, which is basically like a suction pump that you suck onto a muscle and then you move it up and down. Like, there's, there's absolutely no scientific research that supports the use of Chinese cupping in sports medicine at all. It is the only thing which stops my back from hurting. Right. It's just so effective, but there's no research for it at all. And yet, that's the only thing that I can use to make my back feel better. And this was you know, introduced to me by a practitioner there. So they were really clued up into, okay, there's no real research for this, but if we give him it and he thinks it makes it feel better, it's probably going to be really good. That's a, that's a real nice example to me about how people have come from a science background, but then have also got the sort of practical uh, interpersonal knowledge about how to make it much more applicable as well.
0: Uh, it's funny like I think you, you hit the nail on the head there with, with so many things even with training or with recovery uh, the brain is in charge of that stress response and if, if the brain is not relaxed there's a chance that the body's not going to be relaxed so that's why I always try and provide my guys with a little bit of option to pick what they think works best for them because you know some yeah. guys may love a pool session and other guys may absolutely fucking hate it and that's, <laughs> they're not going to come out recovered you know
1: yeah no exactly yeah yeah, de- yeah definitely like, confidence in the training program is a big thing um, and that's kind of a little bit where I got lost is that I started to second guess coaches quite a lot of time thinking is what I'm doing right and I spend a lot of time sort of researching things whereas really if I had just turned up and done the work I might have been better off.
0: Do you think you may have been better off in that case then if you'd actually gone out on your own and trained yourself to to get rid of that um, that confusion or or that um, you know that questioning is this the best thing? Yeah, for Yeah
1: I think that that has to come at the right point in your career. So, really early on, when I was working with Malcolm. I you know, completely believed in him, wasn't doing any external research, was running really, really well. You know, had a lot of belief there. And then, as you can kind of, you have to have a certain knowledge base to be able to go do your own training um, anyway. Um, so, it probably wouldn't have been the right point. But then, the last sort of year, year and a half, when I was doing bobsleigh, I was kind of doing my own training anyway. I had a coach who was setting me specific bobsleigh sessions as part of a part of a training group but i was set my own weight program i set my own sort of hypertrophy work i was deciding um, how to taper for competitions and when to go down to bath to do specific technical work so i had a a lot more ownership in my own program i much preferred it that way so i kind of outsourced to people as i felt i needed it and then do my own stuff when i thought when my my options were a bit better that way so it's definitely a good idea but the athlete needs to have at least some background and and knowledge and experience, be able to be autonomous like that.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's what Dmitry Klokov did. I, he, I, I saw an interview with him once, and he he basically just said his coach was giving him a bollocking in training one day, and he just said, "Look, you know, <laughs> I think I think we're done here now. I've, I've got to a point where I think I know enough to train myself." And yeah. you know, luckily for him, he went away and yeah got a silver medal at the Olympics. So I, I, you know, it's interesting to see that it can be done. Like you said, it's a question of of when.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, yes, it has to definitely be at be at the right point. Um, certainly, if you're de- like if you're developing, so coaches that work with developing athletes, like in my opinion, should just spend loads of time educating them about good practice. Um, in track and field, especially, it should be very largely technically based because if you haven't got the right technique um, by the age of sort of 16, 17, 18, it gets really hard to relearn that. That's one of the problems I had. Is that I had a fairly good coach when I was when I was young. I, you know, I won the European Junior as second fastest eighteen year old the world but I was sort of not properly developed in terms of like my general strength was perhaps not that good, um, my technique was really poor and then I kind of didn't really do anything about that when I was in the Malcolm, we just kind of ran as quick as we could and then when I moved to Michael Kamel when I, up in Loughborough, one of the reasons that attracted me to go there was that I could do a lot more technique based work so I used to just run as fast as I could so I'd have a really really short stride length but loads of stride frequency and sort of going there and working with the biomechanist, who was Paul Bryce, who I think you met when you go, went to see Jonas, um, was just kind of like telling me, you know, you need to get more stride length, devising training programs to develop that. It took me about two years to be able to get to the stride length, which was almost acceptable and sort of relearn how to run. Then I got injured and went to do bobsleigh, so I have no, no idea about how that effect that would have been. But, yeah, when you're young, you just have to spend a lot of time doing, doing technical-based stuff and learning that kind of thing. And that's, again, something I wish I'd have done or had a coach who spent a lot more time on that kind of part of it.
0: I mate, completely agree. Like, I tell my guys, like, if you're learning to drive, you want to learn to drive in a Fiat 500 and not uh, a Ferrari F40. If you've got a big engine yeah. and you're still making mistakes, like, it's not going to be pretty.
1: Problem <laughs> well, is, though. It's just, it's boring. If you're a 16-year-old kid and you've got an option, can you do sort of a few drills to... So out your technique or can you go and bench press And if you're 16 or 17 you're just going to go and bench press And that's where the education part of it comes in and all that kind of thing, it's really complex to get kids to do technique because they just want to run as fast as they can but um, it's definitely something worth doing
0: and that's why I think as well people maybe outside of elite performance have an, uh, an impression that elite culture is all about pushing yourself as hard as possible, doing the toughest thing, doing the sexy stuff when you've kind of given an example there where elite performance is probably about doing the boring stuff day after day rather than you know flogging yourself and, and patting each other on the back
1: yeah elite performance is just routine so like you wake up you go and do your job and your job is you turn up on a day and you put in a fair amount of effort you can't kill yourself because you've got to come back the next day you just have to sort of address address the problems you've got so people think that athletes are really really motivated like we're not really any more motivated than anybody else we just got to the habit where my habit is i wake up and i go to training and then i come home and then i sort of try and relax even now i'm retired i wake up and i go to the gym working another day and then i'd go to the gym again in the evening i'm just in the habit of sort of doing those types of things i'm not especially motivated to be successful in something anymore but my habit is that i wake up and do it and if you can get kids and young athletes into the habit of turning up and doing a pretty good job on any given day then that's fine because that's all it is like Elite sport isn't you turn up every day and you smash all world records and you're amazing. Elite sport is you turn up every day and you're all right. And the, the just being all right over time accumulates to being pretty good, especially if you've got a pretty good starting point with like really good genetics and stuff like that. So there's a re- there is a big difference between what people think elite sport is and what elite sport actually is.
0: Yeah. And you, you mentioned genetics, you mentioned culture there. Having seen firsthand the best sprinters in the world, what is it you think, Separate certain sprinting nations like the Caribbean countries, like the USA, from, from everyone else?
1: So like Jamaica, let's take Jamaica, for example. So in Jamaica, sprinting is now the national sport. So you'll get people who play in the Jamaican soccer team and sort of under 18, and they'll stop playing football or soccer to become an athlete and to give a, you know, have a chance of being a sprinter. In England, that's exactly the opposite. So you'll get really good youngsters who are quick, and then they go and play football. So, um, guy that beat me at my first English schools came second. He's called Nida Manua. He now plays right back for QPR and he used to play for Man City as well. There's someone that plays for Chelsea called, um, it's called Alex Kuoma. He was one of the quickest fourteen-year-olds countries ever had. So people generally leave athletics to go and play football in this country. In other countries, they leave other sports to have the chance of being an athlete. And you see exactly the same in Ethiopia and Kenya. People just you know, give up their jobs to have a chance of being an elite athlete now obviously the money is an issue there so people go and play football in this country because they want to earn loads of money in the other countries like jamaica and kenya being an athlete is a way out of, of kind of less ideal living situation which you can make quite a lot of money if you're a very good athlete so that pays into that as well traditionally jamaica used to send all their athletes or making athletes used to leave jamaica to go to north america to go to the college system there and the college system in the u.s is like pretty cutthroat so you get I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit but you get 20 athletes you give them loads of training if one of them comes out and runs quite quickly you've done pretty well and so that wasn't necessarily working for jamaicans so they decided to try and set up a program at home so they had um stephen francis set up his own coaching clinic and then he sort of one of his first athletes was a Sapper pal who eventually became a world record holder and then glenn mill set up a coaching center as well so they've got, now I've got two really good coaching centers in jamaica you go through school and then you try and get into those coaching setups. You train with people who are your idols and you train people who are record holders and you've got a coach with large base of knowledge. Like some of these training groups have got 50 kids in them who just turn up. They're not going to get really good coaching, but the fact that they're around these people and they're motivated by that, they've got really good weather, really good um, conditions to run in, all sort of plays into it a little bit more. Whereas in the UK, you kind of turn up, it's freezing you don't necessarily want to run that quick because it's cold. There's not many people in the UK who are particularly successful. So you, you become a big fish in a small pond very quickly, whereas in Jamaica you're a small fish in a pond that includes a world record holder. So it's very, very different environment. So the environment is really, really important. And then there's obviously genetic components to that as well and, and kind of coaching, um, which all sort of plays into that and, and opportunity and things like that. So it's a really, really complex picture. That's probably one of the reasons Why Jamaica are more successful than the UK?
0: It's funny you mentioned like being put, you know, kind of thrown in the deep end with maybe your idols in the sport. Because I I think I watched an interview with uh, Max Aita, who used to lift uh, with the Bulgarians in uh, the USA, and he just said like he he spoke to those guys and he just said basically like you turn up every day and you train training with a world record holder and he said right we're going to lift this much and you don't have a a choice about it. You just have to lift the weight and if you don't, you're out. And if if you do, you're in.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So yeah, if it's like an environment like that where like, if you're, you turn up and if you're not on, having a good day, you're going to be 100 metres behind somebody in a 300 metre rep, then you try really hard not to be that because it's really embarrassing. Whereas in the UK, you, know, you could quite conceivably be the fastest person in your flex club or even at your university without actually being that good. So if you're not being pushed um, in competition or on a daily basis, then that's different. And then obviously like Jamaica, their high school championships are massive. They get like 50,000 people. Coming to watch the high school championships. So, these kids are under a high pressure environment from a really young age. They learn kind of how to deal with that pressure. They learn how to problem, like well, I call it problem solving. So, you know, if things go wrong on a big stage, how do you deal with that? Whereas in the UK, like if you go to the high school championships, called English schools, you get about maybe 100 people in the crowd and they're all parents. Like, so, it's really, really different and you can win English schools and seniors in the, in the sprints quite easily because um, not many people turn up so you're not always under pressure and so that is a big difference i was quite fortunate when i was growing up that i was had a lot of my peer group were really really quick so it was really hard i actually probably lost more races than i won which is a really poor important development um, developmental process for me Whereas you get something like Marcus francis who was uh, four years older than me i don't think he lost a race when he was 13 when he was 19 and then he moves into the senior level where people can run 9.8 seconds and he can't he can't run that yeah. has he developed the mental skills to be able to deal with defeat? And does he understand that defeat isn't necessarily a negative portrayal of him? He's not a bad person for losing. It just means that on that day, he perhaps wasn't good enough. Can he go away and learn from that? And if he hasn't learned those lessons when he was younger, that can have a negative impact on that as well. So it all sort of plays in into that kind of thing.
0: It's funny you mention um, problem solving. Like, I thought about... Um... Usain Bolt at the last World Championships, like, is it, was it the quarter or the semi that he stumbled and he still managed to pull it together and get to the final? And then when he did get to the final, kind of put it out of his mind and managed to come up with his season's best, even though he's, you know, so far off his best.
1: Yeah, and that's like a combination of those things. So, like, he's digging deep from when he was a, when a kid and, you know, getting beaten or all, all those injuries he had where he knew that if you lose, how do you bounce back from that? He, he's figured out that the only thing that matters is. It doesn't matter what happened in the quarterfinal, or the semi-final. All that matters is that when that gun goes in the final, can you beat everybody else? And a lot of my kind of thinking about this comes from being part of the relay team, which if you're a great brain athlete and you're part of the relay team, things have probably gone wrong for you because we always get disqualified everywhere. So you have to learn from those things. And I got disqualified. I was responsible for the team getting disqualified at the Olympic Games. So I we went to the Beijing Olympics as reigning champions, and I got the team disqualified. It was completely my fault. It wasn't anybody else's fault at all, but... I Learned a lot from that, which was basically like if you take control or if you say it was your fault, so I said it was my fault straight away on a televised interview, and then kind of go away and think about how you can improve from that. That's really positive. And actually, the reason we got disqualified is I left three meters early, which was like an absolute criminal mistake. But in all the other relays I ever did, I left exactly on check mark. Took a pretty big mistake for me to learn that, but I did learn that. Whereas generally, what you see now is that the Great Britain relay team gets disqualified they fight with each other on TV about whose fault it was because they're trying to blame other people, whereas they need to take ownership of their own mistakes. And then they need to get exposed to competitions where things don't go right so they can learn how to problem solve. So a lot of the relays that I did didn't go particularly well, but we could problem solve around that. So in one race, the person I was going to give the baton to left two metres early. So I've had to figure out a way to pass him the baton, uh, which was, you know, you call him put his hand back which slows down his velocity and then you just make sure he keeps his hand back for a long period of time and then pass the bat and so you learn all these problem solving things through exposure to competition and plan B sort of training stuff and that's really important as well and in my opinion perhaps the real team don't do enough of that and they also don't take ownership of it as well
0: Right Argentina rugby 17 <laughs> losses from 17 before they got that first win
1: <laughs> Yeah exactly and you've got to go through that, that sort of period because people sometimes take a hard look at themselves and think what am I, what am I doing wrong and if you win then can often disguise a problem. Whereas if you lose, then you can learn that. And so in athletics, you get a lot of people who are good quite young and they, the coaches try and protect them and make sure they don't lose a race because they have to take that badly. And I think, no, you should be making them race people that are much better than them so that they're getting beaten week in, week out. Not Maybe not week in, week out. It needs to be some sort of confidence-building part of it. But they need to lose. People need to learn how to lose so they can respond to it properly when they're older. Like when I was 13 and I lost a race, probably cried. When I was 26 and lost a race, you kind of realise, well, it doesn't mean that I'm a horrible human being and I'm worthless. It means that on this day, I wasn't because I could have been, what could I have done differently? And then you don't make that mistake again. So it's a really important part of the development of a person.
0: For sure. So track and field at the moment, bit of, um bit of controversy, uh, allegations about doping and, and corruption within um, the Federation. What was your experience of, of, of doping, within the UK and also against athletes that you competed against?
1: Yes, actually I didn't have much experience of it at all. So I think, again, there's a disconnect between and let's just ignore what's happened in the last year with all these allegations come out. But generally people think that elite athletes are on drugs. And in my experience, I've never seen anybody take any drugs. And like, I go away to competitions and I'm living with somebody for four weeks and if they were taking drugs, I'd probably be able to pick something up about that. So I think in the UK, athletes probably don't really take drugs or, or don't take drugs. You very rarely see an athlete based in the UK who's an elite athlete, fail a drugs test. It's very rare. Usually if British athletes have failed a drugs test it's because their training base is somewhere else where people perhaps have less scruples about that kind of thing. Happened in the 80s may, might be happening now. So in the UK, it probably doesn't happen that much. Internationally, it probably does happen quite a lot the only thing i ever saw is that i found a discarded iv drip in a toilet once at a competition um which is obviously they've been using it illegally um so whoever did that was cheating but in you know, iv drips you know, it's, it's no it's not anabolic steroids or anything like that but it's still pretty bad that's the only thing i ever saw so in general i think that actually probably athletes don't dope as much as people think they do probably some countries do so russia almost certainly do um and other countries perhaps have a bit more of a systemized doping program as well. The UK absolutely does not.
0: Yeah. And you know, without pointing the finger, do you think, speaking hypothetically, if you have an event, for example, and most of the top 10 fastest runners in that event have tested positive on a doping test at some point, but the very, very fastest athlete has not, do you, do you think that would indicate an athlete taking drugs or just absolutely out of this world genetics and talent?
1: Yeah, I'm certain Usain Bolt does not take drugs. Like he's the most talented athlete I've ever come across. So, like I said, I used to train with someone called Jason Gardner. So Jason Gardner ran 9.98 for 100 meters, so he's one of the top five fastest British athletes ever and at the time. He was the third fastest British athlete ever. There was a lot wrong with Jason Gardner. Like there's a lot of things he could have done better. He ran 9.98. It's really not that hard for me to believe that somebody could be 0.4 of a second quicker than Jason Gardner is. Like. Usain Bolt's a lot taller than Jason Gardner, he's perhaps a bit less injury prone, he's got much better top speed, all the kind of factors play into that. And remember like, Usain Bolt won the World Under 20 Championships when he was 15 years old, so he's always been a really good athlete, he's got loads of success early on, he's not at all like an outlier, his performance is not an outlier relative to how he was performing when he was young and he, you know, I very much doubt he would have been dopey when he was 14 and 15. So it's not hard for me to believe at all that Usain Bolt's clean. Like sprinting, especially, gets a bad press because people fail drug testing that. So, like Justin Gatlin, obviously, like killed the sport with all, all the things he did. Um, Dwayne Chambers didn't particularly help either. But then you've got like really weird cases of Tyson Gay, where Tyson Gay failed for a drug where if you were taking it, you're an idiot because everyone knows that you'd fail for that. So, it's a bit of a dodgy situation where I don't think Tyson Gay meant to be taking that, but he definitely deserves to be banned for that. Then you've got like Mike Rogers, who's a U.S. sprinter, failed for a stimulant and, as a sapopal. And it's sort of reasonably well established that they were very accidental positives. They'd found them or they'd come across them in an energy drink, which they thought um, didn't have them in. Or they were taking a supplement which um, had an off-label uh, or had these, had these ingredients in but didn't mention it on the label. Like, those athletes are responsible for what they put in their body. They deserve to get banned for that. But that's not the same as a systematized doping program where for three years they've rubbed testosterone on their forearms and injected THG into their tongue. We're talking about two very different things here. So sometimes the, the finesse of it gets lost. They're definitely drugs cheats and they deserve to get banned. But sort of, it's a bit less of a drug cheat than somebody else. And we're starting to see now that more and more sprinters are failing. If they do fail a tests. test, it's for a stimulant and not anabolic steroids. So they're just not being... Carefully enough in how they select medication or energy drinks or energy drink medication are getting more contaminants in them they're not sort of deliberately going out of their way to dope some of them are but if they are they usually get caught
0: and for that reason do you think maybe there's a case to be made for uh, maybe a sliding scale of penalties because as you've said there's a massive difference between the intention to use anabolic steroids and maybe an accidental positive from a stimulant yet yeah. You know, to the letter of the law, they, they might both result in a complete Olympic cycle being missed.
1: Yeah, I feel like I think there is a there certainly was when I was an athlete, and I haven't really kept up to date with the anti-doping laws. But certainly when I was an athlete, there was a bit of a sliding scale where, and sort of Tyson Gay was banned for a year, as was Sapper Powell. Um, Justin Gatton was banned for eight years, sent to four years on appeal. The so there is a bit of a scale. Within that, and that's you now that's good. That's common sense based stuff. And we had those two UK athletes, um, Reese Williams and Gareth Warburton, who failed for um, uh, an anabolic steroid that was in a supplement, and it wasn't mentioned in the list of supplements. They tried to be really careful to get a batch tested one, and it still had this this uh, steroid in. So they failed a drugs test, but they could prove quite easily that they tried to um, have the thing tested for, um, and it was in their, um by mistake so they they had a year's ban again common sense kind of prevailed a little bit they they're not systematically doping they've made a mistake they do deserve to get banned because it has to be deterrent to ensure people deserve to listen to these laws and that kind of thing but it's not the same as some of the things other people do so common sense does prevail sometimes
0: cool and let's talk a little bit about uh the work that you're doing with with dna fit now what uh what kind of stuff are you doing as, as a company and and what kind of new information are you uncovering with the research?
1: Yeah, so like as a company, our main goal is to really just help people um, achieve their health and fitness goals. So what DNA Fit does, we're a genetic testing company. Which if you say that, people automatically think you're talking crap. So let me try and um, make make it clear that we're not we're not sort of setting um, a snake oil or stuff like that so we do a genetic test tell people how we think they'll respond to training and that's based on you know, pretty good research and how well they respond to diet so what type of foods do they have, do they need more vitamin D do they need more vitamin B than other people and 99.5% of our customers are in the general public and we have some professional sports people as well um, my job role within that is I'm head of sports science so I'm kind of like educating people about what it all means what the limitations of it are, and that's the big thing for us, which is making sure people are aware of the limitations. It's not a talent ID tool. It has no predictive ability to tell people what sport they be good at. It just tells people very generally, do they respond a bit better to endurance-based training, which is kind of like volume stuff? Do they respond better to power-based training, which is intensity? How much of that should they be doing? And Anecdotally, we have really good um, results based on that. And then very soon we'll be releasing a bit of research, which we have to do ourselves, which is obviously not ideal, but that'll be getting um, released in the next few months, which shows that we probably do know what we're talking about a little bit. So when that comes out, that should be be pretty good. Yeah, the research that, so I basically spend a lot of my time reading scientific papers, find out is there a genetic component to people being successful in sport? Definitely is a genetic component to people being successful. Um, Some people have a much higher starting point than other people. Um, which might make them be more successful. Some people can adapt to exercise much better than other people, which might make them more successful. And some people have a high genetic ceiling as well, which might make them more successful. So those kind of three factors play into that. Probably the most interesting gene um, from my point of view is a gene called ACTN3, which is often called the sprint gene or the speed gene. Basically, it codes for a protein, which is found in fast twitch muscle fibers. You either have... The version of this gene which works really well or it doesn't work particularly well if it doesn't work particularly well you don't get as much sleek to muscle hypertrophy or improvements in strength but you do see better improvements in muscular endurance to other people so just knowing stuff like that might be useful for some people um especially in the professional sports sphere but also in just in the general public as well so that's kind of a long-winded answer to what i'm doing right now
0: and we we spoke a little bit off air about this about you know the potential value of knowing you know if an athlete's got this gene they might be good at this sport but you know i said i I was in a presentation five years ago where he said yeah there's a sprint gene but you know almost all kenyan runners have this gene and you mentioned that 87 percent of people have this sprint gene and i think it's actually overrepresented in, in asian populations which is not actually a hotbed of sprinting do you think perhaps the future of genetic research is starting to look at the interaction between those different genes and then start to get closer to the true answer of of whether it can predict um, performance in an event or, or have even more value as a training tool.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So genes do not work in isolation at all. So there's kind of like an additive factor. So if you've got the sprint version of ACTN3, if you've got a version of another gene called ACE, if you've got those two versions, they sort of add together to improve that performance. So what we will probably see eventually is if we understand what all the genes do, and that'll take a long time, we'll see a threshold at which if you're above that threshold, we could say with perhaps 90% certainty that that person would be an elite athlete. There'd still be people that don't meet that threshold who would be elite athletes because you can't account for everything. You can't account for environmental factors or outliers. But we can make it a bit more certain. But that is like 10, 15 years down the line big thing for us is predicting response to training and response to diet. So in the general public, response to diet is quite important. People are fat in general, especially in the UK. So we need to find a way to improve um, adherence to diet and improve success in a diet. The research is pretty good, actually, that if people are on a genetically matched diet, they stick to that diet for longer because they think it's applicable to them and they lose more weight as a result of that. So if we can just reduce trial and error with regards to what diet people go on, you know, people generally think low carb diet is really good, but some people have got gene variants which don't respond quite as well to that. So that can be important from a general health point of view. From a performance point of view, can we predict how someone will respond to a weight training programme? That's kind of the big the big question. So in general, if you create a weight training programme for somebody, if you say to a personal trainer, what kind of sets of reps does someone need to do to get strong, they'll say they need to do three to five sets Of five to 12 reps. It was kind of like, well, which is it? Should they do three sets of five? Should they do five sets of 12? There's a large individual variation. And if we can understand someone's genetics better to predict how they'll respond to that, the environment being the training program, then that could be like a really, really important breakthrough. And we think we can do that um, based on some research that will come out pretty soon.
0: And presumably, that's got great application as a a talent ID tool because. The, the kid who's top of the class when he's 13 won't necessarily be top of the class when he's 20 and you want, an, you want somebody who's not only talented but has a huge potential to get better.
1: Yeah, so we definitely don't have the power to use it as TAT ID yet, but it'd be more about, okay, what is your goal? How can we try and get you to meet that goal? So um, will you respond better to lifting really, really heavy weights or will you respond better to lifting slightly less heavy weights but for more volume? how quickly can you recover? What's your injury risk? So can we predict how likely you are to suffer from Achilles tendon injury? Um, and then can we take steps to reduce that? So can we give you eccentrics or isometric loading? Can we make sure that you stick to this training program a bit better? So we do screen for injury risk as well, which is like really, really important because athletes don't really like doing prehab. But if you can show them there's a genetic reason why they might have to do this prehab, will they adhere to it better? We think they probably would. So there's loads of applications for that. Talent ID is probably not an application or certainly not an application we can use it for yet, but in the future, possibly.
0: Cool. And you you write your own blog, right? Yeah. Who are some, who are some other people that you listen to within uh, sports science or, or strength and conditioning and, and why do you listen to them?
1: So I, I just try and follow as many different sources as I can on like Twitter and Facebook and that kind of thing. So, just want exposure to loads of different ideas and then i try and focus on something for a little bit so i've just gone through that david joyce book high performance training for sport i've moved on to um marco cardinelli's book which is um biological practical principles and applications strength conditioning or god it's dry it's
0: dry yeah (laughs) (laughs) it is dry at the moment i
1: hope it's going to improve and then next i'll be moving on to the new franz bosch book as well so kind of like you just see what other people are reading and then and then move around that and then just try and get exposed to new ideas on Twitter. So that's how I came across you and there's like loads of other researchers doing that kind of thing. And then try and read even broader than that, so like general psychology. Um, Matthew Syed's new book called Black Box Thinking is really good about how the blame culture it focuses primarily on airlines and the NHS, but it definitely applies to elite sport. That's a really good book um like just try and read as much as i can as broadly as i can and then sometimes you can pick things out to to go into
0: a bit more so you uh, you brought up franz bosch's book um i've just picked it up i'm um, like one one chapter in i think it's quite interesting with franz bosch because i think so much of what he talks about is theory at the moment yeah, um, yeah. and you know i've had conversations with coaches cuz we're sad and we don't talk about anything else, but we we were talking about this at dinner and we said, you know, if you think about other sprint coaches, like for example, Charlie Francis or Hank Krasenhoff, Dan Paff, they seem to take a much more uh, simple approach to, to sprinting mechanics from what I can see. And they've got the, the gold medals and the world records to show for it. And yet some, you know, with Franz Bosch, maybe that, that track record's not there yet, but his ideas are very, very popular and create a, a big noise within strength and conditioning what are your thoughts about the the ideas or the information that he puts out there
1: yeah so i think there is human nature is to think that the more complex something is the better it is and if you can understand that complex thing you're a really good person and so i'm not saying this is the case for everyone but coaches will try and seek out complex things because it sounds like they know what they're talking about if they regurgitate it and say it so that's human nature a little bit and like you say I think quite a lot of time people are looking for a magic bullet, whereas actually the magic bullet is doing things simply but consistently. So Dan path has, he has a technical model, um, just basically put one leg in front of the other with a high knee and use a good arm action, and you'll be, okay, if you consistently cue these specific things over time, that will accumulate. Good for the athlete because it's really simple for the athlete, good for the coach because he's got a simple technical model and got success with that. doesn't mean what Fence Bosch is doing is wrong. And I think, I I haven't read his new book, so I don't really know much about that. I haven't read his first book. And I think he's starting to come at things from a different angle, which is kind of like, we generally think perhaps strength is about how heavy we can lift something he's coming in with. It's about how you coordinate the movement within that. And that's definitely a really interesting way to think but like you say, he doesn't coach any athletes that run under 10 seconds. I don't think he coaches any athletes that run under 10 and a half seconds. doesn't mean what he's saying is wrong. just means there's no practical um, application to it yet. And so I don't really know is, is the answer. Like I like to keep things simple where possible, but then I also like to take in advice from other things. It would probably be a case of reading the book, trying it, see how people respond to it, that kind of thing. But yeah, people generally get carried away with the more complex something is the better it must be. And I actually think the opposite is true. Probably should be the simpler things are, the more effective it is.
0: I like it. That's probably a great time to finish there. Thanks, Craig. No problem. Where can uh, can people reach you on the internet?
1: So probably the best place is to follow me on Twitter. It's at Craig100M. And then my website is craigpickering.com, but I don't really update that too much anymore. So they just stick to the Twitter. They'll probably find out most about me there.
0: I appreciate that, mate. Thank you very much.
1: No worries. Thanks a lot.